fire up the projector, get your popcorn while it's hot. You know what it is. It's time for Picture Lock. It's Picture Lock on WERA LP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous award-winning show. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. I'm so glad I get to cap off this election week with an episode of personal and political empowerment here on PictureLock. I spoke with director Jamie Lynn Littman about her documentary, Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Day Story, director Ashley York about her film, Hillbilly, director Don Mickelson of Risking Light, and director Nora Shapiro about her doc, Time for Ilhan. Now, the cool thing about Time for Ilhan is that it covers Ilhan Omar's race for a seat in the Minnesota House of Representatives in 2016, which made her the first Somali-American legislator to hold an elected office. And she just became the first Somali-American Muslim to hold a seat in U.S. Congress. So congrats to her. But first, <laughs> a political defeat. The frontrunner, starring Hugh Jackman, hits theaters this weekend. And I have my thoughts on the film that sheds light on Gary Hart's run for the presidential election in 1988. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. The youngest candidate, Hart spoke at full campaign trail. The clear front runner. So start with the uh, shoulder in a little. My name is Gary Hart and I'm running for president. I want you to think about the opportunity that we have right here, right now. I've never known a guy more talented at untangling politics so that anyone can understand. It is a gift, and he wants to share that. And all anybody wants is for him to take a stupid photo. He will never understand that. Gary Hart is the man to beat in 88. If we hold ourselves to those highest standards, then the voters cannot do otherwise. Senator, I want to ask you some questions about the woman at your townhouse. Can you tell us how you know her? You can't be serious. No one is staying in my home. There's no need for that. Uh, I, I am serious, sir. Oh, cinnamon, where are you gonna run to? The one thing I asked is that you don't embarrass me. We can't hide from this. The cameras go everywhere. It's up to us to hold these guys accountable. Just because some other paper used gossip as front page news, I mean, that doesn't mean we have it to. It does. It does now. He is a man with power, and that takes certain responsibility. We need to say something. It's nobody's business. None of it is. Okay, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about how you get through today. All right, guys, so you just heard the trailer for The Front Runner. I got to see this film in Middleburg at the Middleburg Film Festival this year, and I got to say, The Front Runner is proof that there's nothing new under the sun. The film looks at a pivotal moment when politics and media crash together to change the way we analyze political candidates' personal lives and decisions forever. We still deal with political scandal today, much like the 1988 presidential run that crashed within a matter of weeks for Gary Hart. But this is when the idea of news media being a watchdog and covering candidates' personal lives to ensure they match kind of was created. We've seen biodrama films like this as well, but co-writer-director Jason Reitman gives us that old gum with a new way to chew it. Hugh Jackman is Gary Hart, a man of the people. He's charismatic, smart, handsome, and willing to take a stand against politics as usual. You know, it's the kind of stuff that we like to see even today. All signs point to him being the front runner of the 88 election before suggesting to a reporter that he'd be bored if he followed him around and thus encouraging him to do so. Hart's bluff is called as the Miami Herald follows him and uncovers a scandal that ultimately ends Hart's political run. Reitman gives us an inside baseball look at the situation as things unfold. In fact, perspective is key in Reitman's direction both in the script and his frame. Numerous times through the film, he tells two stories simultaneously so that you have to keep up. Reitman's ability to keep our mind engaged while cleverly displaying multiple stories 
and pushing each scene forward is what makes the film fun to watch. We know the ending as we watch the story unfold in 2018, but getting there is probably as stimulating cinematically as it was to live through in 1988. This is definitely an ensemble film in which everyone brings their A-game, and I don't have enough time to go into it. You can definitely check out my full written review on PictureLockShow.com under the new release section. But let me say this, Hugh Jackman, we know him for being larger than life in most of the films that he's in. Here, he shows considerable controlled restraint, and that really allows for the ensemble the entire cast to have moments to shine. The front runner may not appeal to mass audiences. I mean, it's certainly a character study that allows viewers to draw conclusions on politics today and a director's masterclass on framing a technique. However, it's undeniable timeless and timeliness of its subject matter is worth the view. I give it a B plus. Again, you can read my full review at picturelockshow.com under the new release section. I definitely want to say, you know, right now it's award season, so PictureLock is cranking out reviews between myself and contributors. Make sure you go to picturelockshow.com for movie reviews so that you know what you need to check out for the weekend and even as we get into award season. All right, so let's go ahead and transition into the show this week. I got some great interviews for you guys. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. This is Claire Fowler, the writer-director of Salam, and you are listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Ade Story is a feature-length documentary about an American actor who was duped into drug smuggling and spent three years in the most dangerous prison in Pakistan. I have the writer, director, producer of the film, Jamie Lynn Littman on the line. Jamie Lynn, welcome to Picture Lock. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Jamie Lynn, I am excited to have you on. The first question that I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Well, when I was seven years old, my dad took us to Dollar Night at the movies every single Tuesday. But he didn't take us to see movies that seven-year-olds should be seeing. We went and <laughs> saw whatever he was seeing. And so I just, from, from then on, I, I, fell, I fell in love with movies, like in that world. And to the point that, you know, he continued. He's such a fanatic of film. And we saw everything. And then continuing on... I started from my brother and getting older, getting exposed to a lot of foreign films. And I pretty much spent most of high school just cutting school and you could find me in the movie theater. And it's still always like my favorite, you know, place to be. I've just always been in love with everything about film. You know, I, I feel like I would like to hang out with your dad and uh, learn some fatherly advice. <laughs> because for me <laughs> as like a film critic and lover of film, like, you know, I haven't let them watch, you know, Terminator, but, you know, I, I knew they were a little young for Star Wars. And, uh, you know, when they started getting freaked out because Darth Vader came on the screen, I was like, OK, well, they're not ready. But <laughs> but I'm itching to get them into, you know, cinema. And they know they know that they, they love it. It's one of the things we love to do. So uh, I love that story. My eight year old daughter, I, she she was she's just like me and I take her to see a lot and I really feel like I can't not let her see things because I got to as a kid. So it's nice that we kind of share that bond together. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about that first question. And what I love about cinema is that most of the time, anybody that comes on the show, they relate, relate it back to childhood, family, and bonding. And I think that's just an amazing power that cinema has. But if you could uh, take us from the little girl that's watching movies she shouldn't be at that age to the woman now who is making films, how did you get into the industry? Well, um, well, I, I grew up not too far from L.A. I grew up in Valencia, 20 minutes away. So when I graduated high school, I moved literally the day that I graduated to Hollywood and just kind of found my way and I started out as an actor but as an actor I was always you know hanging out with crew people on sets and I was always re reading biographies on filmmakers I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan and then shortly after that I went to film school because it was something I could control I could make short films I could write scripts 
you know, I had a friend that worked at Paramount. We used to go through the script closets and copy scripts and, you know, reading books. And I, I learned how to write. And I was always in love with more. I was always in love with the film more than I was my role as an actor. So it was a really natural transgression to move over into filmmaking. One of the things that you said just now that, like, I kind of, my ears perked up is you're like, it was something that I could control. You know, for me personally, the reason that my ears perked up is because I'm like, I'm the exact same way when it comes to filmmaking. Like, I want to write it, direct it, produce it. But I just want to, I just want to jump into that a little bit more, just in terms of the control of creating a world, right? Whether it's narrative, uh, fiction, or it's documentary, what about that really fascinates you? You know, I, I've, I've just always been in love with stories and I've always been attracted to true life stories. And that's kind of a lot of what I've done and what I'm developing through my company. And, you know, I love every form of cinema and, and narrative as well. I mean, I, I, there's a, we run narr- a narrative sequence in this film and I just directed a narrative feature. But, you know, for me, it's, the creative control of being able to tell the story you want to tell and also to, you know, there's a responsibility when you're dealing with people and their real lives, especially in a documentary format. And so that's the, the most important thing to me is the integrity of the people whose story I'm telling. Most definitely. Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to Picture Lock. I'm talking with the writer, director, producer of Three Years in Pakistan, the Eric Ade story, Jamie Lynn Lippman. So, Jamie Lynn, let's jump into uh, Three Years in Pakistan. In your own words, what is the film about? So, Eric Day, when this is in 2001, he was 21 years old. He was an American actor, and he was sent to death row in Pakistan for a crime he didn't commit. And he spent three years in one of the most dangerous prisons in the world where he was tortured and beaten, and he learned to survive, and his his, the strength of his mind is what got him through. And he was actually proven innocent. It was, they found drugs hidden in the walls of the lining of his suitcase. And when he got caught, they told him that they were going to hang him that night. And he was actually proven innocent that he did this unknowingly. Um, and there was an affidavit signed on his behalf, and he was told that he would be released within four months if he would just plead guilty. And he said, I'm not pleading guilty to a crime I didn't commit. And so they sentenced him to seven years. And through the, the the way that he ended up getting out after free is through a casting director in Hollywood, Joey Paul Jensen, the former governor of New Mexico, Bill Richardson, um, his mother's perseverance and getting a meeting with the president of uh, Pakistan's brother, um, he was released. And, you know, I think for me and what was so important in telling the story is Eric is such an inspiration. I mean, what he how he survived and endured all that, and then how when he was, came home, you know, how he looks at life and how he picked his life back up. I mean, he's a poker player, which he learned to play, you know, on death row in Pakistan from uh, uh, friends that he made in there and the, the hijackers of the Pan Am plane. Uh, he's also a stuntman and, uh, you know, working stuntman and actor. And uh, I just think he's such a, you know, he's such an inspiration. So that's also why it was really important. And and to give him a chance to tell his story in his own words was the reason that I wanted to do this. As I listen to you speak, one of the things I'm thinking is, you know, how did the material, and obviously this is a documentary, so how did the real life story come across your desk? And then what was the thing that, you know, triggered you to say, you know what, I want to... Um, shoot a documentary on this subject? Well, I've known him since he was 17 years old, so I knew him before, during, and after, and we had lost lost touch for years. And then I put out a film in March of 2017, last year. Um, But cutting back to February 2016, I was, you know, everyone's asking, oh, you're about to put out a movie, what are you going to do next, what are you going to do next? And you know, I was watching Jim the James Foley store on HBO, and that I was so incredibly moved and affected by that story and film, and I just, you know, I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell Eric's story. So I got in touch with him through Facebook, and he had currently been writing a book on the story and posting excerpts on Facebook. 
So it was always kind of in the back of my mind. Mm. And we met, and I, you know, just told him why it was important to me because I knew this person so well, and I knew that he was innocent. And, you know, he agreed to let me do it. And while we made the documentary, we also developed it as a feature, which focuses more on the prison life as well. So now we have that together that we're, you know, pushing forward to get me into a feature. Man, so I I would love to just camp out on this, uh, but unfortunately we're going to have to wrap up the interview soon. Um, But final couple questions. One, what has the audience reaction been? And I know you just kind of got on the festival circuit with the documentary. What's the audience uh, reaction been to the film? And then what has Eric's reaction been to the film? The, the reaction of people is that they're just so incredibly, they're moved, they're sad. You know, we, I, I heard the other day, I was angry, I cried, but then he had a sense of humility and I was also inspired by the end. So I think it really is a full circle reaction, but it's been very positive. We just released in the theaters at Lemley's North Hollywood last Friday, and it just came out on VOD. And from emails and texts and reviews, it's it's really that there's, it's, you know, really hard, painful, emotional film and, and very heavy. There's a lot of heavy things to watch, but it also has a lot of heart and, you know, he's such an inspiration. So the takeaway is what I hoped people would take from it. Yeah, that that sounds awesome. What about Eric? What 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 has his thoughts been? Eric, you know, he's he's very pleased with the film, and I I think that, you know, he did years ago an episode of Locked Up Abroad, which covered a portion of this, and they did a good job. But you didn't really get to know the Eric. You didn't get to know his life. This film covers before, during, and after. And I think there was a lot of questions with people in the world, and there was some blowback. He got a lot of fans, but he also got a lot of haters and people questioning his innocence. And I think for him, you know, the takeaway is that he finally got to put out his story in his own words from start to finish, and I think that's been really gratifying for him. I love it. I love it. Controlling the narrative and preserving integrity is the writer, director, producer of Three Years in Pakistan, the Eric Ade story, Jamie Lynn Lipman. Jamie Lynn, I, I, I really do appreciate the fact that you took time and the effort to um, tell Eric's story because I think what you just said, um, it, man, that, that's such a powerful moment when you can give someone the opportunity to have their full story be told. So if um, folks want to check out that full story, how can they follow uh, you, the film, online, social media, etc.? Well, if you live in L.A., um, it's our final day at Lemley's North Hollywood, and there'll actually be a Q&A after the 710 film where Eric and myself will be there, moderated by filmmaker Michael David Lynch. Uh, the film is everywhere now. It's on iTunes. It's on all, most all VOD platforms. You can find the film on uh, Facebook, Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Bade Story, or on Instagram, The Eric Bade Story, and myself as Jamie Lynn Littman, and I've spent a lot of time on Instagram. So, And you can also, on Twitter, it's uh, 3YP Doc, uh, where you can type in Eric Bade or myself, and you'll find it. Awesome. Well, Jamie Lynn, thanks so much for stopping by Picture Lock. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey everybody, it's Dan Brawley, the Chief Instigating Officer at the Kukaloris Festival, and you're listening to Picture Lock. It's Picture Lock, I'm Kevin Sampson, and since the presidential election, the cultural divide in America has expanded. Stereotyping and slurs are rampant, finger-pointing and name-calling abound. The film Hillbilly goes on a personal and political journey into the heart of the Appalachian coal fields, exploring the role of media representation in the creation of the iconic American hillbilly and examining the social, cultural, and political underpinnings of this infamous stereotype. I have the director producer on the line with me, Ashley York. Ashley, welcome to Picture Lock. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Ashley, first question that I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? When I saw the movie Harlan County, USA, which is film directed by Barbara Koppel that won the Academy Award in 1975 or 1976, I saw that film when I was a student at the University of Kentucky studying journalism. And it was such a transformative moment for me because it was the first time that I saw the people 
of Eastern Kentucky be represented in a dignified way, in a way that showed them telling their own stories and being so unique in in a way that I, I hadn't seen growing up. So that movie definitely inspired me to make documentaries and, um, you know, continues to be one of my favorite films. And it's featured in Hillbilly. There is a, a brief segment where we uh, where we talk about that story of Harlan County, USA. Nice. That's that's awesome. So I would love to know if you could give us a history lesson. Like, how did you break into the industry? Well, I studied journalism as an undergraduate. I went to the University of Kentucky, and while I was there, I worked for what feels like just about every media outlet on the campus. I <laughs> started out by writing news for the, the student paper. It's an award-winning paper, um, the Kentucky Colonel. I was a writer. I was an assistant editor. And then I became the editor-in-chief my last year. So that really gave me a framework for talking to people, understanding what reporting was about, and also showing me my interest in working with marginalized and vulnerable communities. Um, I also worked at the NPR affiliate while I was a student. I hosted a talk show while I was a student for the local radio station and worked for the city paper. I was an editor at the TV station. So, you know, I was working at all these spaces just before the Internet became a thing and when we started to uh, read news on the Internet and consume media on the Internet. I loved school, you know, I loved critical thinking, and, and I was really interested in this idea of where critical thinking meets media making, um, and understanding that there are other ways to tell stories than just the way the news did it. So, you know, while I learned a ton and, and met amazing people and learned the framework of how to report, I was interested in a more cinematic approach, and I was also interested in having the opportunity to spend more time with stories and not to have to sort of turn them around every single day. So uh, I went in the complete opposite direction and went to cinema school where I started making films. And, uh, you know, of course, it can take many years to make films, to five years almost to, uh, to make Hillbilly. It'll be five years in November from wow. when we started. I moved to L.A. right after I graduated from the University of Kentucky to pursue an MFA at the University of Southern California in the School of Cinematic Arts. I was in the newest division at that time, which was the interactive media division, and I uh, was exploring emerging modes of storytelling and also deepening my practice in the documentary space, and I started working at a production company on a high-profile feature film immediately when I moved here. So, you know, I hit the ground running with, um, you know, both the university and then also professionally. And I've been here 16 years now, and I have continued to pursue independent films. Hillbilly's my second completed work. And then, um, you know, I also work as a producer and director on projects for Sundance and Netflix and HBO, Discovery, National Geographic, et cetera, et cetera. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director-producer of Hillbilly, Ashley York. Ashley, I really appreciate your story, and um, I feel like Hillbilly is a personal documentary to you. If you could, what is the film all about in your own words? Right. It's so difficult to describe this film still. You know, five years later, I feel like it's a movie that continues to evolve, and my relationship continues to evolve. When we started the film, it was very much a film that was academic in nature, very intellectual. It was examining this long history of media representations of Appalachia and Appalachian American people. And then as we moved through our process, we it just became so apparent that a personal approach would be transformative to the narrative of this movie. So that's when we decided to experiment with putting me in the film, having me be the narrative anchor of the film, because I do have a personal relationship to this topic. And, you know, it's one thing to think about this intellectually and to examine the way that media portrays a certain group, you know, in this case, Appalachian people. But it's quite another to talk about how that experience has influenced you, and especially in this political climate. When we started the film, it was 2013, late 2013. Um, I was finishing up my first film, TIG, and 
uh, paired up with Sally Rubin, who's the co-director on the movie, to, um, you know, work together. And the election was certainly not something that we planned for or thought about. And it wasn't until we were filming in the summer of 2016 that the convention started happening and, you know, the election started to shift in a way that we just did not foresee. And it felt like a moment for us to capture something that was so reflective of the media culture that we were documenting over all of these decades and also to bring me into the film. So, um, you know, it, it is very personal and I, you know, I have memories going back to being an eight or nine year old girl and seeing news programs that would go into Eastern Kentucky and that would, you know, go in and tell a story about us. And, you know, it became this public spectacle where everybody's sort of looking at those, you know, poor people of the mountains. And, you know, I have been conscious of that since I was, you know, eight years old. I'm now 38. So, you know, for most of my life. But I think it took a long one, learn how to think critically about media. I had to learn how to make media. I had to enter the documentary space. You know, a lot of things had to happen in order to make this film and to bring the team together that would serve the vision of the film. Oh, man, I would love to talk a little bit more about this, but unfortunately we're going to kind of have to wrap things out here. But um, one of the things that I feel I can really relate to you uh, on is that uh, this film is a, a, about kind of grabbing your story and telling the truth from the people, you know, kind of by the people. Um, I think mm -hmm. about something like Ozarks, which uh, I just binged through um, recently. And part of the, uh, I don't want to say, it's not fantasy, but like it's the uh, exoticism of the mountains and the mountainous people. And like you said, like these poor people in the mountains. Um, really kind of comes through in, in that show, although I think it's like a great show. But yeah, to your point, a lot of times when we think about, you know, hillbillies or, you know, it's this image that the media has given us. So uh, I guess if you could just like let me know, like how have you felt in terms of audience response thus far? And what's the thing that you want um, audiences to take away when they finish seeing this film? Well, we, um, you know, made this film for a rich and varied audience. You know, we, we certainly didn't make it to just speak to mountain people. Um, but it was important to us, of course, to honor Appalachian people and to, you know, make sure that we were defying stereotypes every step of the way. Another goal for us was to reach urban audiences, and that's been a little more challenging, of course, but, you know, now we're finally in a place where the film, you know, has and is reaching urban audiences. We won the documentary award at the LA Film Festival a couple weeks ago. We've been programmed at Doc NYC. Um, you know, so we are entering into urban spaces because I think the film is so relevant uh, given the current political climate and, um, you know, the themes of the film. You know, there was that we were in the Women Texas Film Festival in Dallas back in the summer, and the lead programmer there, Justina, she was talking about the film, and she said, and I just, I am so moved by this, and I think that it's exactly what we're, what we're trying to do. Um, you know, her comment reflects what we're trying to do. She said, this film changed my mind. I had preconceived notions. And this film has helped me understand this region of the country and the folks who live there in a more complex and nuanced way. So, you know, I mean, that is ultimate. And also, the film has been seen by, at this point, everybody who is in it, just about, from the scholars to my family to, um, you know, the other amazing group of folks that are featured in the film. And the response from them has been so positive and they feel that they've been represented in a way that is so unique and that is offering this counter narrative to what has been in the media culture since the late 1800s when the term hillbilly first appeared in a newspaper referring to somebody who lived in Alabama. Mm. So, you know, um, it's really moving to, 
to, um, you know, hear the responses. I mean, my Aunt Regina, who's briefly featured in the film, she's a resident of Virginia, born and raised in Kentucky. Um, you know, she stood up at the Nashville Film Festival premiere in the Q&A and said, you know, I've run away from this my whole life. And I, you know, never identified as being a hillbilly, but this film helps me reimagine my relationship to the term hillbilly because <laughs> we really do seek to subvert that and to reclaim it, similarly to the way the queer community took back the term queer, which used to be used in a derogatory context and now, of course, is a term of empowerment and it represents a spectrum of people, you know, a very um, nuanced and varied group of people. So that's the hope for Hillbilly. Bill, Bill Hooks, who is my hero and who is also featured in the film, she's a fellow Kentuckian, she has said that she has hope for hillbilly and for the term and that we can really reclaim it and we can leave behind all that is negative and counterproductive and we can, you know, use it as a term of empowerment. So that's been a guiding light and, you know, what I really hope that audiences can continue to experience when they see the movie. Awesome. So actually, if you could uh, just let folks know, how can they find out more about the film, follow you guys on social media? Uh, we are at hillbillymovie.com. If you go there, you can find all kinds of information about the movie. There's a contact tab, which will email us, and we are very responsive. So um, we will be releasing the film digitally in January, and we are still working on a broadcast or uh, SBA distribution agreement, which we are hoping to um, happen soon. It's director producer of Hillbilly, Ashley York. Ashley, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What if you could have a film critic, film festival director, film publicist, and fellow filmmaker guide you with your film's PR and marketing journey from pre-production to post? I'm Kevin Sampson, and my online course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker, does just that. In this course, I'm going to teach you how to set up your film to engage an audience and build a community long before you call action. I'll show you how to approach critics to make them aware of your film like publicists do. And as a director of two film festivals, I won't just teach you hacks and secrets to reduce entry fees, but how you can use the festival circuit to create buzz around your film. I'm a huge supporter of diverse storytelling and film, and I believe the most unique voices come from indie filmmakers. That's who I've supported over the years with my show, Picture Lock, whether on TV or on radio. With as much experience as I've had as an independent filmmaker myself, critic, publicist, and festival director, I realize that most indie filmmakers just need access to the knowledge that big firms provide to achieve success. So in this course, I'm going to demystify some of the process and give you everything I know in a behind the scenes look at the sides of the business you don't always see. So if you're an indie filmmaker that's looking to change the game with your film's PR and marketing, make sure you check out PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Head on over to PRForTheIndieFilmmaker.com and get a free preview of the course, PR for the Indie Filmmaker. Get your film seen, build community, and become an army of one. Picture Lock question of the week last week was, what's your favorite sports film? On Instagram, at Reparation Movie said, Hoosiers is right up there with Remember the Titans and Better Than Rudy. Makes you cry on different levels with epic performances by Dennis Hopper, Barbara Hershey, and Hackman. At Henry Leaker said, 2011's Warrior, both brothers' stories are equally compelling. They're both broken and desperate underdogs. You want both of them to win so badly, but a league of their own is a very close second. At Nerdy underscore Neil said, Friday Night Lights, expectations, coming of age, overcoming adversity, and ultimately playing the hand you're dealt. Or Cool Runnings. As a son of Jamaican immigrants, it was great to follow a story about the land of my roots, good performances by Leon and John Candy, an old dude bragging about running a 100 meter in 9.9 .9 has been made comically dated since Usain Bolt has since 
run it almost half a second faster. <laughs> That's appreciate you guys on Instagram. On Facebook, Lauren Bradshaw said, yes, a league of their own. Thelonious Stanley said, it's not your traditional sports movie. War Dance, documentary about children in a hellish war zone in Uganda and what they had to go through to compete in an annual cultural Olympic type event. If you can watch this movie and not have a new definition of champion, he said that in all caps, I would question your humanity. Juan Stewart said, hoop dreams, hashtag classic. Thanks everyone for participating and leaving your thoughts. This week's question of the week, would you help me celebrate 100 episodes on WERA 96.7 FM? You can easily do that by leaving me a message 60 seconds or less on your top three Thanksgiving films and thoughts on the show, and I'll play it during next week's Thanksgiving slash 100 episode special. Yes, folks, I can't believe it. I've been on the air for 100 episodes for WERA. That's 101 hour shows. That's crazy. That's the equivalent of over four days of content, like straight up. Like you could just keep playing it over four days, 24 hours of content. That's crazy. So help me celebrate that. I think it would be so much fun to hear from you guys. I've already had some calls. Uh, Go ahead and leave a message at 202-350-1351. Again, 202-350-1351. 60 seconds or less with your top three Thanksgiving films, plus your thoughts on Picture Lock. Have you enjoyed the show? What's one of your favorite moments? Let me know. You can always let me know on social media or email me at picturelockshow at gmail.com, and I'll read your answer next episode. Hey, I'm Chad Eric Smith, writer and director of Rumination, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and Risking Light is a thought-provoking documentary that explores resilience and the painful process of moving from grief to compassion and forgiveness. Through the unforgettable stories of Mary Johnson, who grieves a murdered son, Deborah Hawking, a victim of government-sanctioned genocide, and Keelung Ng, who survived the terror of the Khmer Rouge, Risking Light challenges us to examine our own beliefs about forgiveness and ask, what would the world look like if we could learn to forgive one another? I have the co-producer, co-editor, and director of the film, Don Mickelson, on the line. Don, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it is my pleasure, Don. I'm excited to talk about this film because I think this is a great question in terms of forgiveness. But the first question that I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? You know, that's that's a, a tough question in the sense that I think it wasn't there wasn't a concise moment. I think that growing up, you know, in, in America in the 80s, um, you know, one falls in love with film, one falls in love with The Princess Bride and, you know, all the, the <laughs> stories of our, our youth, a uh, never-ending story. Uh, but I didn't, never really saw a place in the film world for myself. Um, I assumed that I was going to become an actress uh, on Broadway. <laughs> uh-huh. And then had a political political awakening in college that made me go, okay, I'm not going to be an actress. I'm going to do political science and women's studies. And uh, started doing film production just as a hobby. And eventually my hobby evolved into a, a career, you know, stopping along the way as a news reporter. And um, then eventually working on my first independent film in like ooh, 2000, I think, is when we were working on that film. So... You know, I mean, I have to say, working as a news reporter, that was probably the moment I realized how much I loved the medium, particularly, you know, the documentary storytelling, and uh, that, in fact, this was a career. This was something that I could dedicate my entire being to, and what a thrilling thing to discover that, you know, the your job <laughs> could be something so incredibly fulfilling. So, yeah. Yeah, that was... <laughs> you know, that, the that's, beginning. That's, that's really interesting. And I think you kind of covered usually my next question, which is kind of how you got in 
to the industry. And so I want to yeah. go ahead and kind of jump straight into risking light. Sure. You know, this this concept of forgiveness, it's it's something that a lot of times people kind of, you know, you could go to counseling or I, unfortunately, I, I guess what I want to say is that I think a lot of people don't realize that they have to let go of the baggage of pain and, and things that have happened in the past. So I'm really interested, what is Risking Light all about in your own words? Uh, you know, I think it's about three people who are incredibly wounded um, by some profound trauma who discover that the, the key to their healing is in forgiveness. And and in exploring that, it's, it's also exploring what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. I think that Many of us need to unpack that term, you know, particularly if it comes from a particular religious perspective, as it was in my case, or, um, you know, cultural perspective. There are a lot of, of presumptions that we all know what forgiveness is. And I think that in this film, you know, both in making this film and in watching this film, you see over and over again what true forgiveness is and that it really is about healing for a victim. And... If a perpetrator, if, you know, whatever they're forgiving, if if they want to take responsibility for their actions, that's even better, but it's not necessary. And I think that, you know, honestly, that was one of the reasons I wanted to pursue this is I was I was looking for looking for stories where we were in control of our destinies, right? But no matter what happened, no matter who was involved, you are in control of how you feel about things and the impact that makes in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, you know, for me, what was probably most important was this idea that it's, it's about you and empowering yourself rather than letting somebody, you know, get by having done something horrible. <laughs> right, right. If that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the co-producer, co-editor, and director of Risking Light, Don Mickelson. Don, yeah, I, I totally understand. And I think, and not to turn this into like a whole religious conversation, but, you know, for me, the same thing when I think about forgiveness, you know, sometimes we hear stories in church of like in war-torn countries where, you know, um, men have come in, raped someone's wife, and then the husband, you know, is able to forgive that person and, like, their brothers now or whatever the case may be. And I just think about, like, how in the world could you, like, forgive someone and then be their friend? And and when I when I was looking at the trailer, um, especially with Mary Johnson and um, just her son being killed, and then, you know, in the trailer she said, you know, I just hugged my son's killer. That is some powerful stuff. So could you talk a little bit about maybe the the transformation that you were able to witness um, and that people will witness when they see the film? Well, I, I think that that's, you know, it is important that we, yeah, thinking back to those stories you hear in church or here here on the news where you see those forgiveness stories and you go, oh, my God, how could that possibly have happened? How could that person do that? Mm-hmm. And that really is Mary's story with O'Shea. Uh, I think what I was really interested in and what Risking Light does is it looks at that journey that it wasn't this miraculous thing that happens. You know, in television news, you hear murder. She turns around. She's a miracle. She forgives them. <laughs> but it's a lot more complicated than that. Right. She went through, you know, well over a decade uh, of, you know, just turmoil and wanting, you know, wanting to, him to suffer in every way possible before she realized that her anger was turning in on herself and that, you know, she was, the lack of forgiveness was eating away at her. And she was re-victimizing herself in Mm. not forgiving him. So, you know, it's this, I mean, the whole, the title Risking Light really is about the idea that it is a risk to go down the path of considering forgiveness because you have to face all the emotions that we hide behind with anger, you know, that anger protects us from, mm-hmm. you know. And so, yeah, this, this, this story is really about, like, that middle, middle ground and then about 
the impact when you can re- finally release that pain and how it not only impacts you, but it impacts everybody who's connected to you. And it's, there's definitely a ripple effect. Yeah, you know, talk about effects and ripples. Um, <laughs> I recently watched <laughs> A Wrinkle in Time with my kids. I didn't see it when it came out in theater. But <laughs> I, I, I wasn't the huge biggest fan of, of the film, but I was a really big fan of some of the concepts that they brought out. One of the things that they mentioned, and it was Oprah's character, she said, you know, the only thing that travels as fast as light is darkness. And so when you think about, mm. you know, your title, Risking Light and Risking, you know, the Hope all the good stuff about, you know, that we have in, in, in terms of this world and humanity and all that kind of stuff. Um, I do think that with the lack of forgiveness for another person, you risk that light diminishing and the darkness creeping in. Um, It could be something as small as, you know, somebody stepped on your shoes and you choose to get upset about that and hold that grudge. That darkness can really grow really quickly or, you know, you just let it go or whatever. But right here you're dealing with huge issues. So as we kind of wrap out the... The last question that I I had wanted to ask is what has the audience response to this film been? I I would imagine, you know, the lights come up, maybe you got some people crying, but like, what are the conversations (laughs) after? Yeah, it really is very uh, personal to individuals. I think people go to those places of pain for themselves um, if, if they're open to it. You know, some people fully immerse themselves in one of the three stories. And, we, you know, it's funny how each person, I think, resonates with a different character. Some people are really Team Deborah. Some are really <laughs> Team Mary, right. you know. And so it's, it's cool to see people really resonating with one particular person. And it really, it's been pretty even um, in that, which is exciting. Uh, but I think that the people who want to go there, who want to reflect, generally do go to that personal space of what what it is in my life that I'm holding on to. And so sometimes we have conversations about, you know, here are some resources online if you really want to explore this for yourself. You know, I'm not a counselor, but (laughs) here are some resources of of people who are really good at this, this trauma recovery piece. Mm. Um, and, and other people are just, you know, I mean, I think that it, what we're talking about are really intense emotions and really dark stories, but in the end, the light is so bright. There is such hope that, um, you know, I, the audience is usually wiping away tears while smiling. So <laughs> right. I think that's, that's a good outcome. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Well, that is awesome. That is incredible. Um, I, I definitely think that listeners will want to check out your film. And so how can they do that? How can they follow you on social media, keep up with the film online? Certainly. Uh, well, we are currently still doing festivals. We premiered at Cinequest this spring, so we are still kind of in our festival run. Um, I'm anticipating that we will be going to, you know, streaming and all those different things uh, in 2019, early 2019. So the best place to kind of keep track of us would probably be on our either Facebook page, which is Risking Light, uh, you know, Facebook backslash Risking Light, uh, on Twitter at Risking Light, um, Instagram, web- website is riskinglight.com, and we have an email list if you really want, like, the first <laughs> email that says, you know, this is it. Here you go. Right, right. <laughs> ready to go. So, yeah, that's that's the key thing. And we're also looking to to screen community in communities and nonprofits. And so there's a place to contact us there as well because I really want this film to have a a life, a grassroots life that uh, goes well beyond the festival. Awesome. Well, folks, uh, you just heard it. That's a definitely a great way to be able to keep in contact with Dawn in this film. Um, she is bringing light into a dark room, literally, with the four walls of the theater, uh, with her film, Risking Light. Uh, co-producer, co-editor, director of the film, Dawn Mickelson. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Rock. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Royce Atkins, writer and director of The Girls No Brain, and you're listening to Picture Lock. 
You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson, and on November 8th, 2016, a young hijab-wearing mother of three named Ilhan Omar made history, becoming the first Somali Muslim woman to be elected to state office in America. Time for Ilhan intimately chronicles her hard-fought campaign for state representative in Minnesota's Senate District 60B, home to the nation's largest Somali community. A fresh take on the old story of the American dream, Time for Ilhan offers an inspiring, stereotype-busting portrait of a rising political star as she begins a bold and powerful political career. I have the film's director-producer, Nora Shapiro, on the line. Nora, welcome to Picture Lock. Thanks so much for having me. Nora, first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? You know, I think I fell in love with film like many people do as a young child uh, without even realizing it. And actually, unlike maybe a lot of directors that you interview, I didn't start out working in film. I started out um, after college going to law school, and I worked for over a decade as a public defender. But during that period, I still was – so I loved film – as a pastime, and I had lots of friends working in, in public television and other elements of film and storytelling, but there was that, that core, that storytelling piece that ultimately is the thing that drew me when I switched from, from working as a, as a trial lawyer into, into film, and in particular into documentary film. And that, that's what I fell in love with in terms of my actual work. I still love narrative films and stories, but as far as the, the work that I do in film, it's been in, in documentary. You know, Nora, um, you are not alone in this. And actually, I, honestly, I need to get like I need to get an intern or somebody like a fact checker, because at this point, you, it's you might be like the sixth person that I've interviewed that, especially in documentary, has been like I started out in law. And then, you know, I switched over to filmmaking. It's something there. Like, somebody needs to write a book about it, but for some reason... Totally agree. Yeah. Hey, let's do it. I love it. Well, you know, Don Porter um, was a lawyer. Oh, wow. She became uh, an eminent documentarian herself. So, yeah, yeah, there, I think there is a there there. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into Time for Ilhan. Like, first off, if you could, like, how did, uh, you know, the material kind of come across your desk... And um, if you could, in your own words, like, what is the film all about? Sure. Ilhan and uh, what she was attempting to do came, came into my world the way maybe a lot of documentarians find things, which is while you're looking for something else, uh, or, or you start down one path, and you think you're going in one direction, and then something else comes up, and all of a sudden it grabs you right. <laughs> by your gut, and you're you know, there you go. So in this case, um, I, I had been interested in that community and strong women in that community for a long time, and I was looking to tell a story in that community, and I was actually running by some of my ideas by a friend of mine who's a brilliant, uh, powerful Somali woman, and she basically shot down the idea that I was sort of running with and said, you know what, you should meet my sister for coffee instead. I think the two of you should talk. And that was Ilhan. It was her sister who had been my friend for years. And uh, as soon as I dug in and, and learned about that campaign and what Ilhan was up against, immediately I thought about the film Street Fight, um, about Cory Booker and and when he first was making the, his foray into um, running for office. And I thought, wow, that's this, only in this climate in which we're increasingly seeing ramping up Islamophobia and in particular a lot of um, assumptions and stereotypes about Muslim women. And I knew immediately that this was both an opportunity to tell a really exciting, interesting, straight political story, but one that had all these other elements. And on top of it, issues of representation, who, who is getting seats at the table and what are the barriers, even in this case, on the left. So unlike a lot of um, political stories, people assume it's going to be 
you know, a battle between the left and the right, conservatives and liberals. This was actually a, a battle within the um, Democratic side because mm. it's such a liberal district that um, Ilhan was, was challenging a 43-year incumbent, but in addition, a woman who was a, a feminist trailblazer in her own right back when she got in, there weren't hardly any women in politics. Mm. But in addition, there, she was going up against a Somali man. So it was a three-way race, and it offered all kinds of dynamics of, of gender and structure and incumbency and who holds power and all kinds of dynamics all at once. So that was what, what drew me to it. And also, I just knew immediately that Ilhan was remarkable. And while it was not clear from the start that she would win, in fact, she was an extreme underdog, it was, I mean, I would have bet anything that eventually she was going to be in office because I, I, anybody that meets her knows, even then, um, how remarkable she was. What was unclear was how that would shift and change. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director, producer of Time for Ilhan, Nora Shapiro. Uh, Nora, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap out the interview, but what I would like uh, for you to do, if you could really quickly, what's the audience reaction been so far, and then how can people follow the film uh, via social media, website, etc.? Great. Thanks for that question. So the reception has exceeded our, our you know, wildest hopes. People, uh, even though most people go in knowing the outcome, people sort of are on the edges of their seat as they go through the film, and people laugh and cry and cheer and ultimately come out really hopeful. And our hopes and dreams for the film is that it's going to inspire all kinds of future Ilhans, future campaign workers who supported Ilhan and make people really feel optimistic about participating in this time where people are sort of overwhelmed with cynicism and despair about the state of politics. Mm. As far as how people can follow us, the, our website is timeforilhanfilm.com and people can go there and be in contact with us, see where it, it has screened, where it's screening. They can um, go to our Take Action page and request to host screenings in their own community. We have a big community um, outreach and engagement plan that we're going to be rolling out in 2019. We are People can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, we, we'd love to hear from people and be in touch with them. The film will be available on um, Amazon uh, next spring and probably several other outlets as well. And it's also available on uh, Fuse TV um, in some limited limited broadcasts at the moment. And then I'm not sure what their plans are for it in the future. Um, but there's sort of a lot of ways to interface with the film. And we're still on the festival circuit through the year, um, at least. Director and producer of Time for Ilhan, Nora Shapiro, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Jamie Lynn Lippman, Ashley York, Don Mickelson, and Nora Shapiro for coming on the show. For you radio listeners, make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear Ashley's after show conversation with me. That was really good. Plus, I'm going to have the conversation with Jason Reitman from the Middleburg Film Festival exclusively on the podcast. Reitman talked about the front runner, but also went into filmmaking in such a way that actually made me think about the business of film and how even directors with a name like his have to try to figure it out and have to try to work it out to make their next film. So you definitely don't want to miss that. And guys, I got to say, um, it's just been fun doing the after show segment. You guys are obviously really enjoying it. So if you're a radio listener and you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do that in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock Podcast, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. I can't tell you how much I appreciate those five-star reviews. It helps people to see Picture Lock. It helps these indie filmmakers that come on the show to have their voices heard 
And that's how you can support indie film. So please give the show a five-star review if you really dig it. I really appreciate it. It means so much to me. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Also, if you're interested in writing for Picture Lock, let me know through the website. Picture Lock question of the week this week is, will you help me celebrate 100 episodes on WERA? Leave me a voicemail with your top three Thanksgiving films and your thoughts on Picture Lock at 202-350-1351 or send me an email at picturelockshow at gmail.com. Or you can message me on any of Picture Lock's social media pages and let me know your answer and I'll play it or read it on next week's show. All music is done by Mike S, the producer 13. Make sure you follow him on all things social media at Mike S, the producer numeral one, numeral three. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson. And until next time, I hope you stay locked on film. <laughs>